0: I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today I'm talking to Matthew Moore, President and Managing Director at Liberty Specialty Markets, LSM. Matthew is one of the rising stars of the London market and is currently serving as the chair of industry trade body, the London Market Group. Yet his role is global in nature he oversees a specialty wholesale and reinsurance operation with gross written premiums of around $7 billion, of which London business is a minority. In this wide-ranging podcast, we get the benefit of this global perspective on opportunities in the hardening market, as well as going into the detail on the drivers behind the essential reform process that the London market is currently undergoing. I also got to hear about Matthew's thoughts on the future of insurance, industry price adequacy and reserve strength, COVID-19 estimates, and how he's trying to make LSM differentiate itself in a competitive and capital-abundant marketplace. Matthew is a very enjoyable company and an insightful insurance thinker and communicator. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue Prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter And if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for giving us time out of your very, very busy schedule. Everyone knows the market's improved and it's changed for the better from the bottom of the soft market. I want to get a sense of how much
2: better it is now than it was three years ago. Okay. Good morning, Mark. Delighted to be on your excellent podcast. You said I've got a busy schedule. That is absolutely correct. Unfortunately, it's only busy from work. Obviously, two months into lockdown, there's no other reasons for it to be busy. But nonetheless, what do I think about this market that we're in? It is clearly a good deal better than it was through 15, 16, 17, and indeed into 18. And what do I think about that? Well, on one hand, I'm encouraged. It's necessary. It's exciting in many ways that I'm sure we'll go on to talk about in this podcast. But also, I think it does bear some contemplation about, you know, just how soft the market got, and if you like, the collective will to continue to chase down rates through that point of the market cycle on an aggregate basis. You know, when I reflect on some of the lines that have performed well in 2020, when I think of energy, when I think of aviation, when I think of property, both in North America and internationally, et cetera, et cetera, those have got significant rate increases through 19 compounded into 20. It's only just about sort of reach rate adequacy and potentially not much beyond. So I think that whilst there is some collective sense of relief, sense of anticipation, sense of excitement, it does really bear reflecting on just the worst excesses that the soft market can bring.
0: Obviously, you run a much bigger business than just the Lloyd's part, but the Lloyd's part is the bit that I can get to find out about. I can see that you've had uh preempted your capacity syndicate 4472 by 9% for 2021. So what sort of classes and territories are most attractive going into that 2021 market?
2: The part of the business I'm responsible for is Liberty Specialty Markets, which is a global business, which is really what informs the answer to this question. So that's about $7 billion. We finished up in 2020 with Lloyd's being about two billion of that seven billion dollars so it's, it's very material but it isn't even the majority of the business and definitely the london market is an area where there are some great opportunities and really not just opportunities in terms of rate rises but really where the opportunities coincide with where we have our particular strengths where we have particularly strong franchises so whether that is in our retro business which we are a global leader on a rated paper basis whether that's in aviation, whether that's in international property, whether definitely whether that's in energy, then we can take advantages where we can bring our value proposition to life there and get properly paid for it. But it's not just in London. We've grown out our European specialty business over the past three years from a much smaller franchise of about half a billion dollars. And we've more than doubled that going into 2021 with very precise, very thoughtful ways of just targeting specialty niches. And that's going along really well. And then our businesses, whether that's across Australia, Asia, Dubai had a very good 2020, particularly bolstered with the energy market. And through Latin America, we're seeing opportunities around the world. And some of that we may go on to talk about may come from some of the idiosyncrasies and the uniqueness of a huge mutual organization in this particular part in the cycle. But I probably would put London number one or, or joint number one in terms of rate-driven opportunities. But really, as I think as, as global organizations have had to correct or self-correct across the world for the, some of the excesses of their sins of the soft market performance, they've produced opportunities globally that weren't a pretty good opportunity to be able to line up with.
0: Like everybody else, you actively manage your portfolio, and of course, you've trimmed and changed and exited different lines as the market softened. Yep. Obviously, we've got this improved situation now. Do you think are there any circumstances under which you could foresee a return to some of those lines that you have exited?
2: We have to be a little bit careful. I mean, we haven't exited many lines in total. Clearly, it's been much more portfolio remediation, which frankly, anyone who does the job that I do in their organizations will be having the same conversations. It's absolutely essential to having a dynamic business, which frankly, you want to remain solvent. So if you continue to play in lines. And frankly, it means you can't serve your customers properly there because you're always on the verge of cutting that something else or potentially exiting the line. So that's healthy. I don't regard that as a bad thing. I think lines that we've probably remediated or, or pulled out of a lot more. Remember, we're part of a big US organization. So often where that remediation has taken part from Liberty Specialty Markets, we maybe have rebalanced or made our portfolio smaller. But in the United States, the Liberty flag is still sort of flying high in those markets in terms of playing there. So often it's been a kind of an internal Liberty Portfolio Act rather than something which really affects the wider broker and customer.
0: And once you're out of a line, does it mean you can never really go back or do you have to wait a certain amount of per- waiting period before you think it's the right time?
2: I think we have to be much more thoughtful how we think about this in terms of retail versus wholesale. And these are conversations that I have a lot in my role running Liberty Specialty Markets because for roughly we're about a third retail and a third wholesale, predominantly through London Market and Dubai and, and Singapore. A little bit in Miami, and then a third reinsurance, which is very different drivers in answering those questions for in terms of coming in and out of markets. I think wholesale, it's a lot easier to come in and out. Indeed, there may be people whose view is the best way of dealing with wholesale markets is to come in and out. Whereas clearly, if you've got a more customer focused, you know, in terms of the policyholder, Risk managed, risk engineered, bespoke claim service, bespoke IP. You really need that franchise to be very sticky over a period of time to build up that customer satisfaction, that customer base. And then in reinsurance, we are very much geared around long-term relationships in our reinsurance business. It's astonishing. It astonishes me every year when I look at our renewal list. And that's great, because it's great for our customers, they value that. And it's great for us in terms of those relationships that we've built, you know, we're privileged to have those customers over such a long period of time. So very, very different drivers, retail, wholesale, reinsurance.
0: We're in a better market for an underwriter, but it's not a market that's really been categorized by any shortage, really of capital or capacity. Mm. In that kind of environment, one presumes it's all about differentiating your offering and being good at what you do and being relevant. So in that environment, how will Liberty Specialty Markets be seeking to
2: differentiate itself? I think that's just such an important point, because before we talk about Liberty Specialty Markets, just a a point, things are better. And yeah, things are better. But I think we need to take a step back. And as you say, there's no shortage of aggregate capacity. We are going into a recession, a global recession of, of some sort, depending on one's definition and depending on what country you're in. We're still in lockdown at the time we're having this conversation and we've got the challenges of a low interest rate environment that you know we talk about a lot on this podcast and we talk about a lot in the industry that <laughs> feels to be a very strange sort of cocktail for sort of widespread jubilation in terms of well matthew
0: we haven't thrown in a resurgent inflation yet potentially certainly yeah. if you read the financial times or, or wall street Journal, people are already stoking up inflation which of yeah. course we already know about the social version of inflation
2: exactly so we've got inflation economic inflation we've got claims inflation social inflation you know we we whatever unemployment Peeling cocktail you want to mix for this. I'm sure we've got all the ingredients to hand. So I just think I'm always sort of very thoughtful just about how we characterize this. One does hear some of these market conversations where it feels like all one has to do is sort of go into the shed, get a wheelbarrow, and take it into the office, fill it up with cash, and and wander out of it for a couple of years. And and wouldn't that be nice? But that's not true. So we need to be very thoughtful about how we do navigate these waters. Well, how's the specialty markets going to do it? Well, one way we're going to do it is that we are genuinely we have a very idiosyncratic position, maybe possibly unique. And the reason for that is that we're a combination of factors that you don't find elsewhere. So we're a mutual, and that's a different proposition in the insurance market that we can talk about. But also that we're a huge mutual in that we're part of Liberty Mutual Group, 1475 business, over $40 billion of gross written premium. We're also a mutual that's huge, that's been around for over 100 years. And that is very important. And when I became the president and managing director of Liberty Specialty Markets, it was really an itch that I wanted to scratch to better articulate just what made us different. Now, being different in the specialty insurance, reinsurance market is very difficult because it's so fragmented. I think Allianz are the biggest with 4% market share. And then there's dozens, if not hundreds of of global businesses around the world. And, And trying to stress your unique characteristics is a challenge in that environment. But for reasons, as I've said, of mutuality, of longevity and of size, When you combine all of those, that's really powerful because after all, what is insurance, a product we're selling, is it's a promise to pay. And so being an organization that's around for a long time, that furthermore has got a big balance sheet and that isn't distracted or put in any way misaligned in its outcomes by the focus it's got to put on to the stock market, really puts us in a great position. So actually we've got all behind this as an organization we call it for mutual advantage and it's become a very powerful way of articulating to our people and to our customers and to our brokers and to other stakeholders what makes us different and it's a great opportunity mark for me to be able to signal this with bright flashing lights But actually, it also puts a big obligation on us because it's that uniqueness, that idiosyncrasy is only as good as actually we make that for our customers and our people. So it's a challenge to me running the business. It's a challenge to my management team. But actually, it's a great place to be able to articulate what value we can bring in the market. So that's one of the reasons why we've been able to grow profitably so much in the last couple of years. You know, the business Liberty Specialty Markets has actually grown by over a billion dollars in the past two years. It's quite a different organization from the one I joined 20 years ago in the old Lloyd's Syndicate 282 when there were 36 of us. And now we look across and it's a $7 billion global organization. So that balance sheet, that mutuality, that size has all kind of contributed to that.
0: On this mutuality question, I think it was actually John Ludlow, the CEO of AirMIC, which for internationalists is the UK equivalent trade body for risk managers, a bit like RIMS, for example. He was criticising industry generally over its handling of COVID, but he said, actually, the mutuals have probably have done better. So what is it about mutuality? Is it just that you're softer? That when it comes to paying the claims, do you have just a different view to say we're less likely to get into a dispute with our customer because they're
2: a mutualist? I don't think so, in the sense, let me answer theoretically first before I get into the experience of it. I mean, we're not motivated for it to be softer. We still have very demanding financial return targets from our parent and shareholder and executive management. We still have rating agencies. We still have regulators. We've still got Lloyd's. We've still got the same universe of of demand. So both on a personal, professional, reputational, solvency, whatever way you want to cast it, we're not motivated to be softer, to use your words then of course you know in terms of settling claims we have a very well respected claims operation pretty much everywhere around the world wherever we work and um, which i'm not personally claiming credit for but it's great to see and with that obviously goes obligations of you know your following markets of how you settle claims so there's there's no way people would line up behind us as as a lead market if we regarded it as an easy touch so i don't think that's right i think where there has been a genuine difference through you know the, the incredibly tough 2020 and into 2021 i think it's probably a couple of reasons number number one is that you know we i think i used the word distraction before i think it's more than distraction if you look at some of the big publicly listed or or medium-sized publicly listed organizations through 2020 with whatever that brought in terms of their stock price in terms of you know how they deal with their staff in terms of how they deal with their public perception we just didn't have that level of whatever word you want to call it crisis adrenaline stress in the organization and i think that probably leads not just executive teams but managers and staff within the organization maybe to have a wider range of options in terms of coming up some short and medium-term solutions so i think that's important i think the other issue is and i know a number of the leaders on your podcast talk about this but it's there's a reason for it because it's true it's about just how important culture is in organizations and I don't really know what the magical elixir of it is, but there is something about Liberty Specialty Markets so that people like working there, and they like to work there for a long time. The longevity of the staff and and the the culture of the place. And I think that the more I've I've experienced it, and the more I think about that, I do think that really does manifest itself in how customers are treated, how and and how wider stakeholders are treated. I mean, I know it's been on the agenda of regulators much more in the past two years. And uh, and being honest with you, first was confronted with it i definitely was a bit cynical raised an eyebrow you know what are you talking about but actually i've probably got the zeal of the convert on this one i think culture is just huge and i think that maybe it's about a connection between mutuality longevity strong culture which has been invaluable in in this particular phase
0: and to be fair matthew so you've been working in the same place for 20 years so it's not as if you're a new ceo coming in talking about culture when they've only been in the job themselves for six months (laughs) so fair enough we better change the subject We've come through all the renewals, the 1-1 renewals, and we've had all the break reports and lots of new data points. And one thing that came out of that was a sort of consensus, a new market consensus forming around a $50 to $70 billion range for an insured industry loss out of COVID. Does that make sense to you? And would you think that if that were to be true, would that be quite easily manageable out of what's hopefully quite a lot of positive cash flow going to be
2: coming in the next few years? Yeah, I, I think my technical answer is that I think we'll never know. And I think we'll never know for two reasons. One is that I think if you go back to March, April time, we were thinking about COVID in our own organisation as, you know, a COVID event. So you look at your contingency losses, you look at your credit losses, you look at your property BI losses, you know, you, you look at things that would naturally line up behind a particular outbreak of COVID. And then we have to think about COVID then flexes into a year-long lockdown of one form or another, depending where you are in the world. And then potentially it's going to flex into a recession. So I think when we contemplate what the COVID loss is, we're now thinking of in all likelihood over three, four, five years. So I think coming to a, I think that definition gets very, very baggy around once you've sort of taken your view of loss, between Q2 2020 and Q3 2020, and that definition gets baggy. So I think probably depending on what organisation you are in and what view you want to take, you can come up with a different number. The wider point of actually was it overstated, and therefore there's free cash flow. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Mark, I'm looking at the same numbers that you are, and it's difficult to get to above 50 billion in terms of where the market thinks. I think where it has got sort of slightly contaminated is it's difficult to get a line of sight on where are people going to recognize losses under COVID because that might give a little bit more forbearance and where are they hiding other sins in terms of particularly for long-tail lines and particularly with loss trends coming through so I suspect it might be a very unsatisfactory detective novel we may never know you know the mystery may never be solved in terms of what that precise number would be I was looking at a report this morning in terms of how lawyers maybe put this politely maybe seeking opportunities to represent clients around the world through the impact of covid and the laundry list is very long i mean it's pretty sobering reading in terms of what it means from everything from airlines to hospitality if indeed those two sectors haven't been punished enough the obligations you have as an employer in terms of return to work etc 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 so i don't think we've got it beat yet my long-winded answer may have to end with We could still get to that 80 billion number, but it is going to be over a longer period. And we're still, I think the industry is to be confronted with the next phase of potential liability claims.
0: You mentioned towards the end, the liability aspects of this are just completely uncharted. Would that be right? Because we just don't have any um, case law.
2: Correct. I think it's a combination of a number of things, isn't it? It's a combination of case law. It's a combination of jurisdictions around the world in one form or another, being able to execute things that look and feel like class actions even if they're not strictly class actions particularly on behalf of groups of consumers and at some point we're going to come to this conversation about the fact that the reputation of the insurance industry is perhaps not all that we hoped it would be in 2020 and that's not just from whether it's from governments whether it's consumers whether it's from the popular press you know I think we do need to very thoughtfully appreciate that we are not held in high regard at the moment in the aggregate as an industry at this point in time. And that's not a great place to be contemplating the environment with which we'll have to deal with potential casualty suits.
0: You mentioned about sins of the past. And in the aggregate, certainly when I've spoken to some experts and top analysts in the last couple of months, actually over 2020, they've managed to get a bit more confidence that in the aggregate, the industry won't be doing as much reserve strengthening In this hardening phase, as it did say in the two thousand and one to two thousand and four hardening phase, where we'd had that very soft market nineteen ninety six to two thousand, where we'd had a massive reserving hole in casualty. But the jury seems to be out on that, and I'd love to ask what your verdict is, what your gut feel is in terms of reserve strengthening for back years in twenty twenty one. Do you think we've seen the end of it in the aggregate?
2: In the aggregate, I don't think we've seen the end of it. I don't think it is quite as bad as two thousand and one to three because the late nineties were just so soft for so long. Also, of course, you had a very soft reinsurance market at that time that took a lot of the heat off of the insurers and that the global reinsurance market is a lot more disciplined in the period, whatever it is, 2014 to 18, 19. So you don't have that softening element to quite the same extent. I think it's quite as bad. However, you have to be very careful here. We're not out of the woods in terms of increased loss cost trends we've seen a slowdown in 2020 of of cases brought to court in the united states and internationally but you know, all the signs are that's going to resume into 2021 2022 and beyond and one of the benefits of being part of liberty mutual group a huge us based organization an organization that's got probably an unparalleled line of sight into the us casualty market is you know the amount of surveys thought leadership that goes on in that environment from liberty mutual and and some of the responses are quite sobering, in terms of particularly in jury awards, in terms of what the man or woman in the street in the United States thinks of big business, thinks of insurance companies, thinks of the roles and responsibilities of business to remedy social inequality. And that's not going away. So unless Mr. Biden has got something up his sleeve in the short tail, which I think the nature of US politics mitigates against, then this is with us for a significant period of time. So I think you know potentially we've got to think of another word for social inflation in the sense that this feels like this is an environment which is going to continue to surround us. It's not a sharp increase from one point in time to another, and then it can go away. I think we have to think about recalibrating the whole industry. So on one hand, being able to meet our customers' needs, but put the appropriate amount of capital at risk towards this environment. So clearly there's been a recalibration in terms of not just rates, terms and conditions, use of limits to be able to mitigate this. But I I would be cautious about saying that we're through the other side and history is going to prove a number of people right and wrong on this. You know, the startups of 2020 who are taking opportunities in those areas in a more aggressive way. It'd be fascinating to see how that pans out in this environment.
0: As you've mentioned before, Liberty Specialty Markets is a global multi-platform business, which is a significant minority in London. But obviously, you're strongly connected to London. You're headquartered in London, and you had your origins there. And of course, you personally are very involved in all the sort of infrastructure of the London market through the London market group and those sort of positions. But I'd like to ask you, relatively, has London succeeded obviously it's been on a big mission in the last 4 or 5 years to improve its standing in the world has it worked and has it has it made itself a more relatively more attractive place to do business over the last, past few
2: years yeah, okay. So maybe if your listeners, just if you haven't worked this out for my accent, so I, I, I have a bit of a jackal and Hyde approach to this. So on one hand, I, I sort of lead a, a global business and I, you know, I'm you very passionate about us thinking about life globally and not favoring any one part of the business geographically or any one platform over another, because that's not how we work for ourselves or, or our customers or our shareholder. On the other, I am a Londoner who's had all my career in the London insurance market. In fact, I joined as a Lloyd's graduate trainee a million years ago. So for obvious reasons, I'm, I'm very passionate about the London market and it was why I was sort of honoured and really delighted to be um, the chair of the London market group from May of 2020. So I, I you know, I'm really am very, as so many people are at our market, very, very invested on, on every level, not just corporately or personally, professionally, but kind of emotionally. I think people feel very strongly about the London market as something which is unique and which has a, a really compelling power to the extent that we do the right things. So in that context, your question was how, you know, has London, how has it quitted itself in the last few years? And actually, I think pretty well. I'll tell you why I say pretty well. I think, first of all, I think the London market, for for whatever reason, for whatever sort of alchemy brings all these voices together, had a a very, you know, self-reflective, self-critical cold hard look at itself through that soft market phase you know there are no shortage of people shouting for the rooftops that london is either too expensive or too complex or the culture wasn't right or there were barriers etc etc and that didn't feel comfortable you know i remember you know traveling around the world as many people listening to this call do the same thing being in and out of international offices in the u.s being out of international offices whether that's in asia dubai europe australia and knowing that there was another article picking at the scabs of the London market didn't feel great. But actually, we it feels like we've come a long way since then. I think it's just only legitimate to give particularly John Neal, a share of the credit for that. I think being able to align behind a very clear, confident, thoughtful voice around Lloyd's both on its own merits, but also being a sort of an anchor in which the London market can kind of organise itself around around the future at Lloyd's and, and Blueprint 2, where those solutions benefit the wider London market, I think actually has been great. And then if you think about how particularly the harder market works in terms of business coming to London, submission flow into London has gone up. get that message very clear from the broking partners that we have. I think we've found our voice in a way that we hadn't done before in terms of culture, in terms of diversity, in terms of energy in the market. So when you look at the capital raises in 2020, the majority of the capital raised came to London you know, And frankly, it came down to London whilst a number of things you associate with London, i.e. face-to-face trading, the day-to-day ecosystem of people bumping into each other. London was closed, but still London had enough inbuilt advantages for that to be the right destination for that capital and that opportunity. So I will freely confess I'm biased, but I think I'm biased in a good way, in a way that hopefully brings some optimism and some energy to the next phase of London. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about it.
0: So you think this hard market, more of that business is coming in by choice rather than just by compulsion of just you know being the market of last resort?
2: Yeah, I mean, we've got to be careful. I mean, you know, while I'm saying there's more business coming into London, it's not coming into London from Europe, <laughs> you know, for reasons that we, that we all understand. But which I mean, like all things in our industry, you have to be more precise in terms of the segment that it's coming in from you know there's more u.s businesses more specialty businesses more wholesale business by definition is it stressed often it's the same business but at a different market cycle it's the same business at better rates we obviously have this strange phenomenon in our industry that we decide from year to year to (laughs) in the aggregate to not renew business even though it's the same business and the price has gone up because of other features so i think that if you think about the Broken community there's still clearly been uh very exciting broking ventures set up in london you've still got the global brokers still with you know first class london franchises both insurance and reinsurance so no i think we should feel good about it. it does seem to be something i'll get on my soapbox here i think it's because we feel so passionate about london and because people tend to be articulate and really invested in it that we're very quick to be critical and there are some reasons to be very critical by the way which you may come on to but compare it to any other trading environment in the world, we're so very lucky that we do have business coming to us. An environment filled with opportunity, filled with dynamism. It feels like the London market, for a number of reasons, is pointing in the same direction. Whether we're all going to reach that destination, time will tell. So no, I think it's pretty good.
0: You mentioned John Neal there, and we've got the Lloyd's Blueprint two. Do you think it's striking the right balance for the market? And and do you think he mentioned it being now the phase Blueprint one was probably sort of casting around lots of ideas and seeing which one stuck with the market the most? And this is really about where the execution phase, the rubber hitting the road, as he described it. Are you confident? going to be getting it right this time?
2: I think we have to start with a pretty fundamental issue is that everyone you speak to agrees with Blueprint 2. You know, they may disagree around the edges of it in terms of priorities or scope or some issues. But fundamentally, around digitally-based, API-based, common data standards-based platform, which is better for the brokers, better for the carriers, better for the customers and focuses on you know the three crucial areas in London of complex placement, delegated authority and claims. That's a good idea, right? So I think we need to, let's bank that. Then as John says, it's an execution phase and the reality is it is, and it is for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is so that we reach the destination. It also is because obviously, unfortunately, Lloyd's particularly, but also the London market comes with some legacy issues, the clouds of past misdeeds of tech driven initiatives that were not successful. So clearly, there is a really huge impetus to put that behind us. And I totally get that. If I was in John's seat, I would be focusing in exactly the same way. I think the challenge, notwithstanding that, is that this will only work if it is a London wide Initiative. You know, I speak to the CEOs both on a personal level, but also through the connections of the London Market Group, of the CEOs of the company markets and also of the brokers. And they really are behind this. I think there still is a curiosity, still a little bit of a gap, which we've got to get to that gets. This isn't just a Lloyd's initiative that actually it's really engaged with, really standing behind everything from the boardroom into the the individuals writing the business and broking the business of the brokers, of the company market, and clearly of the Lloyd's managing agencies, that this is a London market solution. And this is a really unique set of circumstances. This couldn't happen anywhere else in the world. I mean, Lloyd's is obviously unique, but it's also a very... Individual set of circumstances of where the company market has to line up with Lloyd's, which it simultaneously regards as a competitor, but also as a phenomenon which it's got to cooperate with very heavily, even before you get into lots of gnarly issues around data, who owns it, what information will flow from which part to which part through which vendor. There is this big philosophical issue in London. It's that simultaneously, kind of ambiently, we've got used to cooperating and competing simultaneously. And I think we're going to have to really rediscover that magic to get Blueprint 2 up and running through 21 and 22.
0: What do you think the big prize is on the cost side of things in terms of if this all gets executed to plan, what sort of saving on the expense ratio might be
2: achieved? Yeah, I mean, that is a very difficult question. And I I say it's a very difficult question, not just because I'm unimaginative or an expert, which I may be, but just I had no real idea how about that, how the number was originally generated so i'm not really sure about if you like the science or the mathematics of i think 800 million dollars was the number that was posited my views are a little bit different the short-term savings are probably zero because it, it depends on significant investment so realistically going to a short-term number or short to medium term number is always problematic i think once you get into the detail you know we can't have parallel systems we can't have running a business that's got dual platforms we can't have a separate set of technology systems process one for the company market and one for the lloyd's market so there's got to be some significant investment there which we're already doing then well why do it then well because the cost savings will come over the next 25 years and realistically the reality is it will be less heads, doing less repetitive, rekeying over multiple times, over multiple platforms. So you can pick a number within pretty wide scope for what that means over a period of 20 years. I think the most persuasive people that I think of when I hear about this, I think David Howden talks about this very well, looking across at different financial services industries and looks about the cost of transacting, placing businesses of a common platform. And the reality is those costs and other financial services are very, very low indeed. So I think that, you know, a 10-year view as an industry, we just, you know, we have to emulate that in terms of transactional costs. And then that informs clearly what the what the broker business model is. But also it says that in what world, if you look at that's the London market, London market commissions, which are high. In absolute terms, the degree they're justified is a perfectly reasonable conversation we can have between carrier, broker, and customer. Leaving that aside, in absolute terms, they're high. And in a world of low marginal costs for financial transactions, clearly the opportunity for those cost savings is much, much greater than $800 million over a period of time.
0: Do you think the real benefit is actually, obviously, once we've got through all of this, it's not about cost savings, it's about being able to do things fundamentally better. Once you've got the common data standards, straight through processing, do you think We might just, it's really all about doing things in a completely different way. For example, at the moment, we're digitizing old systems. We have slips and now we're digitizing the slips. Whereas perhaps in the future, we'd realize we don't need a slip anymore. We can just feed something
2: in and get it out the other end. Yeah, that's right. I'm sure. I mean, although what it looks like, I think is more difficult to discern. And I think clearly, I know this had some attention. I'm surprised it hasn't had a lot more attention is the annual contract and in insurance. I know we've been talking about this for a long period of time. And I think that kind of goes together with your point, Mark, about we're digitizing slips. Now, what does slips actually mean in a digital age? And we've seen something from Lloyd's announcing the ability to make capital to flow in and out of Lloyd's more easily, not necessarily as closely linked to the one-year, three-year annual venture and three-year accounting. And I think in my more creative moments, I think you're absolutely right. For carriers, how do we get that flow of capital matching risk in a lot more fluid basis? And I think that maybe the historic ties of the, whatever it is, of 350 years of, of how we're doing business you know, could drop very, very quickly.
0: So suddenly it could become much faster. We get clients, original clients and insurance don't have annual contracts. Carriers don't have annual treaties with minimum deposit premiums and all sorts of inefficiencies. You just have everything flying through much faster with a, you know, facultative reinsurance and retro bought on every risk individually in real time.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think it's worth having these conversations, because I think we have to think about what these different paradigms are going to be. I think, you know, one of the things that slowed down the London market, and we're no better at Liberty, is these systems are so complex, and they're so embedded, and there's so many connections with payment, with process, with legacy technology, with regulation. And actually, then when you think about some of the more exciting things that you contemplate, and you say, what's the short term cost saving, it's actually very small because so much of this is embedded, I think you do need to kind of have a more of a North Star, different paradigm view and say, right, instead of just chunking this up into these marginal improvements and expecting the world to change, let's start with a different paradigm and work out how we'd get there.
0: One little glimpse of the future we've had in the last year of this sort of automatic future, semi-automatic future, is a venture such as Key set up in the London market. Does that idea of a lean algorithmic follow underwriters that hold any appeal to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's actually something that we've, in our own way, not in such a way as well articulated by Brett. We've been working on our own thing for about four years. I think there's two parts in as far as I understand it with Key. On one hand, there's some algorithms, there's some technology. I don't have a line of sight into that. Why would I? But on the other is is a sort of smart realization about, you know, in a wholesale market, once you're very confident in your risk appetite, then actually you can distribute that risk appetite really effectively in a following market way, if you're very, very disciplined by the rules that you're playing to. And about three years ago, I conducted a a study in my own organization and said, what proportion of the business do we lead and what proportion do we follow? And then what proportion of that business, what's new and what's renewable business? And, you know, without getting into the details, very quickly, you see that the proportion of business that you write, you are both the lead and it's new business to you. It's actually very small, or it's small. So, in most business, you're actually follow market on renewing business. So, actually, you know, particularly in the soft market, what you can bring to bear in terms of your influence on pricing, for example, or terms of conditions, is actually very modest. So, then the question comes how can I distribute that risk capital in a disciplined way, but most efficiently? And if key have done that, as I understand it, with a particular tech solution. We're working on some very similar things. And I absolutely do think that will be the way of the future for part of the business with very strict underwriting appetites, well-articulated with a tech solution. Now, the degree to which they've got an algorithm which can generate better underwriting results over time from machine learning is a big topic at Liberty Mutual Group with some very, very big investment, both within the big tech part of the organization there and with MIT with a big relationship there. We're well plugged in there. So it's a big advantage of being part of both a big insurance organization, but also a big organization that's got the majority of its run in personal lines. We're clearly in personal lines. The whole digitization agenda is 20 years old and huge investment has already been made. So we've got a very good line of sight of that in Liberty Specialty Markets. And data and customer centricity and not making... A number of the mistakes that all organisations make when they're going to a new frontier in terms of technology and digitization. So, at a kind of corporate executive level, I'm feeling pretty excited about a lot of that investment and learning. Sort of between mutual group, and we'll be doing our own thing in that space. It's an area that we've been very, very interested in for four, or five years.
0: What follows from that? We've already had this discussion at high levels. In fact, John Nelson was probably the first to mention this to say, in a syndicated market. Well, I've come from banking in syndicated loans market. The leader gets fees. And everybody else sort of pays as the followers follow on from that underwriting and benefit from it and pay for it. And in fact, Bruce Carnegie Brand also mentioned similar things. Lead follow was mentioned in the first blueprint, but it has been parked for the moment. What sort of structure lead underwriter, follow underwriter relationship in the syndicated market of insurance and reinsurance? What do you think is likely to emerge or what should emerge?
2: I think what should emerge is what the market makes emerge. And I think that's been one of the challenges of the lead follow work, which I admire a lot of the ingenuity and effort that went into it. I think seeing it up pretty close, I think it's such a heterogeneous group which is fantastic in the Lloyd's market. That's what makes the market. Trying to impose a standard on how a market should operate is by its nature challenging in this specific, very, very challenging. When we looked at some of the models for leaked follow, there was a suspicion everyone would want to be a follow and that by its nature can't happen. But if you follow the logic of that, then suddenly there's a premium on lead underwriting for which in theory, at least people should be prepared to pay for. So my personal view, and I've changed my mind a little bit over the course of the last couple of years seeing some of this debate up very close, is that actually we should trust in the market to find a way and that frankly you know the technology will advance there'll be more tech solutions which will support those market decisions but we shouldn't get too hung up in a proscriptive view
0: There'll be loads of different models. There'll be small leaders with hardly any capital, but massive amounts of follow capacity almost bolted onto them in sidecars or whatever. Others who have who are very big leaders with huge resources, again, who have follow capacity that just follows a mad hoc or whatever. They, they did all work in
2: many different ways, but it,
0: as long as it works...
2: Yeah, so it doesn't sound too Maoist. Let, let a thousand flowers bloom or whatever the phrase is, yeah. You know, back to some of the earlier questions. so that's what London actually represents. Innovative, market-led, dynamic place for people to deploy capital or raise capital to back their case on why they should be a fantastic lead with little capital or all the things you've just said out mark so but i think it's one of the reasons we should feel excited about it you can't do that in 50 states in the united states you can't do it at scale in dubai you can't do it at scale in singapore you can't do it at scale in Miami. this is the only place you can do this stuff so you know we should feel good about that and find a way to make it happen and find a way to make it happen more efficiently
0: well, Matthew, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. I think we've gone all the way around the houses and back again. I've taken up a lot of your time. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And I hope you'll come on again soon and give us another update. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www thevoiceofinsurance.com